1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is
0: brought to you by 99designs. Working with an individual graphic designer has its limitations. Timing is one of them. Want dozens of designs to choose from in just seven days? Visit 99designs.com slash smart and get a $99 power pack of services free
2: What's up, Smart
0: People Podcast listeners? It's that time again. It's contest time. We here at Smart People Podcast are going to be giving away a Kindle Fire HDX 7-inch tablet and four $25 Amazon gift cards. All you have to do is head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for the newsletter, and anybody that signs up between now and August 3rd will be eligible for the prize. Again, that's one grand prize winner of a Kindle Fire HDX and four runner-ups of $25 Amazon gift cards. You'll be notified via the email used to sign up for the newsletter. Good luck, and now on to the show.
2: Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas, and you were just a little excited. A little excited. I think we might have to edit out how many times I say, oh my god, that was awesome. Because I loved this week's guest. He is like one of my heroes. He is, in my eyes, one of the best communicators in a long, long time. And you all have probably seen him. His name is Simon Sinek. He wrote two amazing books. Start With Why was his first one. And his most recent one was Leaders Eat Last. And he also has one of the most popular TED Talks of all time, And some fantastic talks on 99U, both of which we're going to link to at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Before we dive into the interview today, we just wanted to remind you that
0: if you want to be kept in the loop of all things Smart People Podcast, please head over to the website at smartpeoplepodcast.com. There, you can sign up for the newsletter. You can reach out to us via email, tweet us, see what's going on. But please, please, please sign up for that newsletter We send out some really cool things on there. We give you a little bit of insight to who's coming up on Smart People Podcast. And, you know, it's just a good way to keep in touch with us.
2: So we're going to turn it over here to Simon in a second. If you've been living under a rock and don't know who he is, he is a trained ethnographer and anthropologist most concerned with why. Why people do what they do. Why things work the way they work. And he just really gives some good insight into everyday organizational problems, human problems, fantastic stuff. We're going to turn it over now to Simon Sinek. Simon, thanks again so much for being on the show. I'm a huge fan, and I want to dive into Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last. Your talks are all over the internet. You are a star in the TED sphere and all that. But one of the things I'm interested in is how you got to this point. And really, if you could give us a little bit of a background that we might not be able to get from these videos, I'd love to hear it.
1: My journey is an organic one. It started out of pain, to be honest. I had lost my passion for what I was doing. And it was that pursuit that led to the discovery of this thing that I called the why. you know, I met some people and there's a confluence of events that I sort of learned that every single organization, even our own careers, has functioned on these three levels, what we do how we do it and why we do it. And I knew what I did and I knew how I did it and how I was different. Or, you know, I could talk about what made me unique, but I couldn't tell you why I was doing it. And I realized that's the reason my life felt, felt out of balance. That's the reason I'd lost my passion. And so I became obsessed with this idea and went on the search. And thank goodness for my sort of background in anthropology and ethnography and sort of trying to understand sort of why people do what they do. And I applied that to myself. Found somebody to help me take me through a bastardized version of my own of my own process and came to my why, and it restored my passion to levels I'd never experienced before. It was amazing, and so I did what anybody who who finds something beautiful does: we share it with our friends and the people we love. And I told my friends about it, and my friends started making crazy life changes, and they would invite me to their homes to share with their friends, and people just kept inviting me, and I kept saying yes, and, and people would invite, would ask me to help them find their why. And I used to do it for three hundred, uh, for $100 on the side. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you know, things grew organically to the point where I could say, you know, I could stop doing sort of the, the thing that I used to be doing and start doing all this why stuff, which I loved. And so it was very, very organic.
2: You never hear that story anymore. I mean, so you're telling me just, you, you know, out of the pure curiosity you were diving in, people found value in what you learned and it just became this... Massive business that it is now and it was there was not a, a lot of planning that happened there
1: Well, I wouldn't call it a business and we never refer to it as a business, as a business huh. and even even behind the scenes We don't ask the team never says what can we do to grow the business? We refer to it as the movement and we make decisions and talk about is this good for the movement? How are we going to grow the movement? And so that's how we think about it so it very early on it became a movement and we, we we didn't really think about it as a business. I mean, we knew it was a business, but that's not how we thought about it. Because a business makes you think about numbers and a movement makes you think about literally that, moving, motion. You know, how do you move people? How do you move organizations? How do you move ideas? And that's been the obsession. And, and quite frankly, when you obsess about one thing, that's sort of where you see the results.
2: I can hear, you know, in my mind, the skepticism of, because I love the whole message. I, I love what you do. It's not, it's more like, we're conditioned to look at things from a business perspective, to look at it from the bottom line. Is this going to mm-hmm. survive? And so when you hear somebody kind of say, that's not how we do it, and it, it just sounds too good to be true, what would well, you say to that?
1: Uh, well, understand why I found myself in my malaise at the first place, you know, which was I wasn't doing very well at, quote-unquote, business. You know, the more I tried to make a business work, the, the more stressed I became. And that's what caused me to lose my passion in the first place where my business wasn't growing the way I wanted it to grow. And when I would ask people for advice or go to these conferences on how to build businesses, you know, people gave me good advice and all I heard was what I was doing wrong or what I wasn't doing. It actually made me feel worse. (laughs) Um, And so I had to reframe it because it was the obsession with business that got me in trouble in the first place.
2: Wow. That hits home because... I've kind of started, you know, a business revolving now I call it a business and it's scary too, but revolving around this mindset of like, it's so difficult to turn, I don't know your passions and your thoughts and your love into something that sustains you. And we do kind of get beaten down by the difficulty of it. And you just said, let me get back to my why and then turned it into this movement. Yeah. And it's crazy.
1: Well, you know, and the way we frame things, you know, context really matters. For example, uh, Joshua Bell, and you might know the story, Joshua Bell is a very famous concert violinist. And he plays a Stradivarius violin worth millions of dollars. And people will pay hundreds of dollars a ticket to go see him perform at Carnegie Hall and other famous venues around the world. And sort of for fun as an experiment, he went and set up, opened up his violin case and started playing in the D.C. Metro, you know, as if he were a busker. Now, he's the same world-class violinist and he's playing on the same multi-million dollar Stradivarius, but the context was different. We, you know, most people didn't know who he was and here was this, you know, one of the best violinists in the world and they just throw a dollar in and be like, oh, it's nice, he's trying. And so it's not that we just pay for the talent, it's that we pay for the context. It's that it's, it's everything that goes with it. This is why things like branding and story and all of these sort of companies and consultants have made of a business and made a living selling, you know, these things called brand or story or whatever they are, it's because the context really, really matters. We buy into the whole story. We buy into the history of something. You know, we buy into the history of Harley Davidson or Chanel. You know, we, 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 we hear the stories and the folklore of Coco Chanel or, or Herb Kelleher from, from Southwest Airlines and all the stories of Steve Jobs and his beginning. I mean, this is what we're buying into. And so the way we frame something in our own minds has significant impact in the decisions, in the decisions we make and the way we, the way we behave. I'll give you another funny example. I was watching the uh, Summer Olympics and I was amazed how the journalists would basically all ask the, the athletes the same question, whether it was before the competition or after the competition. They would always ask, were you nervous? And the thing that was always surprising to me was all the athletes always said, no, they weren't. And if you think about what makes us feel that we're nervous, it's right, your heart starts racing, your, your palms get a little sweaty, you know, you anticipate what's about to happen, and you get nervous, right? Um, but those are the same stimuli for excitement. What happens when you get excited? Your heart starts racing, you start anticipating what about, what's about to happen. And so whether through training or naturally, who knows, these athletes had learned to interpret, it seems, The stimuli that we would call nervousness is excitement. In other words, they wouldn't say, when someone asked the question, Are you nervous? they'd say, No, I'm excited. That's what they would say. And so it's simply a framework and understanding how to interpret the stimuli. And so I've played around with it. You know, I've been nervous about something and I said to myself, ooh, this is fun. And it completely changed Hmm. my outlook and how I was sort of about to go into something. You know, it could be something as silly as a date or something as big as. You know, a business deal or something as sort of mundane as turbulence on a plane where we interpret the stimuli of our bodies as nervousness, but all we have to do is reframe it. This is what the why did to me. And it, it reframed the, the journey that I was on. So it was no longer a pursuit of the result. It was now a pursuit of the cause. It was a pursuit of the belief. And that reframing does remarkable things to one's passion and one's ability to sort of make decisions that are good for us.
2: I love it. It's great stuff. And one of the things I had written down in big letters is, you know, I've seen, like I said, I've seen your stuff, read your books, and I always wonder, how did you come to these conclusions? And then how do you put them into these, into this perfect way of explaining it and just getting it out there? It's a, it's unique talent, but diving beyond the top layer message, how did you figure this out? Kind of walk us through that process.
1: I mean, <laughs> you know, what we like to say is when I was a baby, my mother dropped me on my head, <laughs> which which is true, by the way. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I see patterns. I see patterns in information. So I, I, I can take in lots of disparate, seemingly disparate information and see a pattern. And so it's one thing to see the pattern. It's another thing to articulate it. And at the end of the day, I'm kind of an idiot, you know? Um, I don't really understand very, very complex things. And so... I'm a little kid, you know, little kids, you know, when they don't understand something, they say, why, 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 you know, and, and I tend to ask questions until I understand things, just like a little kid does. And little kids aren't smart, you know, little kids are learning. And, and so when I, when I hear of something that I don't understand, I want to understand the basis or roots of things so that I understand it. And I rearticulate it for my own benefit in terms so simple that I can understand it. Well, as it turns out, the ability to to articulate something in simple terms that I can understand makes it easier for other people to understand too, <laughs> uh, as it turns out. So I'm no different than anybody else. I'm, I'm the same as everybody else. I make observations like we all do. Like, why do we get stressed? Why do we feel passionate? Why is it that some days everything seems to turn to gold, and then other days we can't seem to make it work? And some days we're full of confidence and on top of the world, and other days we can't motivate, we can't, like, I have the same questions. Well, why does that happen? And it's the pursuit of trying to understand those things and, and simplify them so that I can understand them are the things that I talk about and write down.
2: Okay. So that's perfect. Because one of the things I was thinking is, for example, leaders eat last. And yeah. so I can understand, and you tell the story great in your talks, uh, about the, the fighter pilots and you kick them off that way. And we'll sure. link to that on the website and everything. But So you get that question, but for those of us that aren't ethnographers and anthropologists, how do you study this? How do you get to the problem or the basis of a human action?
1: Well, at the end of the day, you have to have, or one has to have an an inherent uh, curiosity, right? You have to be interested to understand why things work as opposed to just accepting things on blind faith, because it does. You know, what kind of upbringing do we get when when a parent to every question a kid asks is, that's just how it works, you know, versus trying to understand it. So, again, I, I don't think it's any unique ability. I think it's, it's, it's to keep going until the explanations make sense, until there's a logic. Very often we default to case studies. So when I say, well, why does this concept work in an organization? People will show me that it works in, in various companies, and then they'll show me what the company does and say, see, that's, that's why it works. But that doesn't explain why it works. That explains what they did to make it work. Or that explains how it worked, but it doesn't explain the root cause of the reason it worked. So things like passion, fear, trust, you know, cooperation. You know, when somebody says, How do you get, you know, why does trust exist? How how do we get cooperation to happen? Well, me says, Well, what is trust? Well, it's when we sort of would make ourselves vulnerable around someone and have no fear that they would, okay, I get, I get a definition of it, but why do we have trust? Where does it come from? Uh, And and when you ask these questions, you you inherently go backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards until you can go backwards no more.
2: That might seem like pure logic to you, but even as you're saying it, I'm like, yeah, I know what trust is, or I know what you're, and then when you're like, yes, but where does that come from? I go, oh man, that's a whole new ballgame. So I see what you're saying. You just have to keep asking why it's that childlike mindset, It's
1: that childlike mindset. And, and, and very often we accept symptoms as explanations, you know, so we talk about this company has a ha, doesn't have trust because of their broken culture. Uh, or or this company, nobody cooperates. Uh, so how do we fix the cooperation problem? Right, But the cooperation problem may be a symptom. The root cause of that may be a cultural problem. The root cause of that is a hiring problem. And the root cause of that is probably a leadership problem. And so we don't fix the cooperation problem. We don't actually fix the hiring problem. What we go to fix is the leadership problem, because that's That was the cause of of which all the other things are symptoms. So I guess a component of the curiosity is being a good diagnostician.
2: So speaking of curiosity, we often say, I mean, this podcast, the tagline is is literally conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Uh, That's the whole thing is built around John and I's just insatiable curiosity. Why do you believe curiosity is important?
1: So let's reframe the question, right? What's so important about curiosity? Uh, why questions are hard to answer because when you ask a why question, you get an emotional response. What questions are, are the way to actually get to the root, to the root of these things. So, so what's so important about curiosity? That's an easier question to answer, right?
2: Yeah, it is actually.
1: <laughs> exactly. So I, when you say why is curiosity important, how the heck do I know? <laughs> but when you say what's so important about curiosity, my answer will be the same as all your listeners. You know, curiosity gives you new perspective and gives you the opportunity to, to have adventure being curious, you know, what's important about curiosity, it exposes you to new people, the opportunity to make friends, the opportunity to learn, the opportunity to find how someone else solved a problem that you're struggling with, because most of the problems have already been solved, maybe just not in your sector. So what's so important about curiosity? It's about living with one's eyes and ears open, as opposed to with them closed, which then begs the, um, the discussion about the world in which we live, where we walk down the street, looking down, texting with headphones in our ears. Are we living curious lives?
2: It depends on, I guess, what we're listening to, right? If we're listening to this podcast, we're being curious. <laughs> <laughs> Point well taken. <laughs> no, and you mentioned something there when you, you were talking about what curiosity means. And you said, you know, people making friends, having experiences. One of the things I love about your entire message and movement is it's it's people centric you tend to relate everything to our connection as, you know, as individuals and then coming together as a group to get things done. Has that yeah. always been your interest, just people?
1: Well, a long time ago, I used to be one. <laughs> as Gordon Bethune likes to say. You know, there's no getting away from it, right? It's the one thing that every culture, every country, uh, every business, every industry, every organization, every relationship, every you know, your personal life, your professional life. The one the one unavoidable constant is that we are social animals. We exist as individuals and as members of groups at all times. And um, we are forced, whether we like it or not, to engage with and interact with others. Uh, the benefit being when we get along with people and when people get along with us, they'll watch our backs and help us up when we fall down and put their reputations on the line and uh, to, to benefit, you know, to help us and and offer us um, protection and and teaching and 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 so it is the only constant. Before there were companies, before there were even nation states, all we had were the tribes and the families. That's that is the only constant since the dawn of mankind. So, you know, I guess that's the anthropologist in me, right? I, I am <laughs> kind of into sort of trying to understand people.
2: Yeah, and it, it it pervades throughout your whole message, and I love it. And we've we've talked a few times about start with why and. For those that haven't seen the TED Talk, I wanted to ask you, did that, in your opinion, kind of put you on the map? Did that one talk change your life, or was that just what brought you to, you know, some of the masses?
1: I mean, there's no doubt that TED had a significant impact in the spread of the idea and the speed at which it rose. I had already been given that talk, being given that talk for three years prior. Wow. Granted, not in 18 minutes, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but I had been, you know, sort of. Uh, and it was and the message was already um, resonating with a lot of people and was already growing. And it was the growth and, and resonance of that message that got me the invitation to the TEDx uh, in the first place. But without a doubt, I mean, TED was a massive catalyst and was able to, to get that message to many more people much more quickly.
0: This episode is brought to you by 99designs. I talk about branding a lot. It's a term that gets thrown around by all types of people. And you may be wondering what all the gab is about. What is branding anyway? In a nutshell, it's the set of perceptions people have about your company. You need branding to create a human connection with your audience. Design is key in communicating your brand and standing out from the competition. But what options are available to business owners with little to spend on design? Many have turned to online marketplaces like 99designs to help build their brand on a budget. Startups get maximum creativity with 99designs' contest model where dozens of designers compete to deliver the best design. You get to be involved in the process and walk away with a logo, website, or other design that truly represents your brand. See for yourself. It only takes a week to get a design, and you're guaranteed to love it. Visit 99designs.com smart and get a $99
2: power pack of services for free today. Did you think it was going to have that kind of response? No, <laughs> no, 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 no.
1: I, there was no such thing, especially from TEDx. You know, right? It wasn't the main, you know, Ted back then. Ted, you know, to be a TED talk was a big deal, but TEDx was still a baby, and, and you know, it was, it was, it was still an honor to be associated with the organization. But it was the minor leads, you know.
2: To be honest, I I watched your talk when it had who knows how many millions of views. I was a little late to the game and I never even realized it was TEDx because I just assumed, oh, this much visibility must be TED proper.
1: Well, and the thing that I'm proud of with that talk, you know, everybody, whether at some sort of uh, TEDx event or even just some everyday presentation, everybody's so obsessed with the perfection of their slides and if they set everything right and, and get furious at somebody if the you know the timing was wrong or the lighting was wrong or the slides were in the wrong order. I've seen people collapse because you know the video didn't play. And I, I I like to remind people that that if you go watch the TEDx that I did, the video quality is terrible, the audio quality is terrible. My microphone breaks in the middle of the talk where they actually have to replace my microphone in the middle of it. You see it happen in camera, and yet it's the third most popular TED talk of all time. So it appears that the video quality or the how well your PowerPoint was written seemed to be secondary.
2: Yeah, you actually threw me for a loop with the fact that for those that don't know, you just used this easel and a marker, basically, because I auditioned for TEDx and I was like, I'm going to do it the Simon Cynic way, you know, and I didn't create any PowerPoints. And then the night before, I got really nervous and I threw yeah. some together and they sucked. And then my speech was terrible. And I was like, ah, I should have just stuck with the easel.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there's some good science behind that as well. This I actually, you know, it's sort of typical Simon sort of. I do things because it makes sense to me, and then I find out there's some good science behind it later. But um, there's some good science that students who take notes in class actually retain concepts better than students who write down everything on their computer, who take notes on a computer.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: This was just in HBR a couple days ago. And, uh, you know, because students who write down stuff on a computer, they may take down more information, but they're not actually learning it. Where students who write it, physically write it, they're actually learning the concepts. Even though they may take down fewer points, because they actually have to think about which points are most salient to take in their notes, as opposed to just typing everything. And apparently, uh, there's some evidence that it's the same way when somebody draws something. There's, you know, there's something we have in our brains called mirror neurons, which it's so it's based on the same thing. So when we watch a PowerPoint presentation, we may take in the information, but we're not learning as well as when we watch somebody else draw it, because then we can you know, sort of draw with them in our mind's eye, you know? Mm, So, so people actually, it's the professor who draws on the blackboard versus just teaches out of the book or gives you slides. So, so there's some good, there's some good science behind it.
2: Sure. Yeah. And then I know, you know, I watched the 99 you talk, which is twice the length of the TED and you also use the easel thing and again you're going through all the different uh, brain chemicals yet it's one page on this easel and I'm just thinking how does he do that but before we talk about that people have heard us talk about start with why they've probably seen the TED talk and so they know that it's not what you do it's why you do it but I would like you to give us a quick tutorial on how to figure out our why
1: Uh, yeah there's many ways to do it I used to do it with people. I used to actually sit down and take them through this process. And, you know, my amazing team who realized that there's only one of me, um, <laughs> they took the process and they, they, they built an online version of it. So, uh, start with Y.com. Um, there's a Y university that the amazing people on my team took the entire process there. I used to do it and they basically took the exact same thing and put it on there. But I, I'll tell you a, a fun way to do it for free. Find one of your closest friends. Uh, it doesn't work very well with spouses or with siblings, Um, but a close friend, somebody who, if they called you at three o'clock in the morning, or, you know, you would take their call and you know, without doubt that if you were to call them at three o'clock in the morning, they would take your call and ask them this question. Why are we friends? And obviously they're going to look at you like you're crazy. (laughs) And they will say things like, I don't know why are you asking me this. And it's not that they don't know. It's that we're asking them to put into words, um, something that exists in the part of the brain that doesn't control language. And so then we stop asking why, and we start asking what. Remember, why gets an emotional response, what, what gets a, a rational response. So we, we say to them, come on, what is it about me that um, we're such close friends? And they'll struggle. they say, I don't know. And what they'll do is they'll start describing you. I don't know. You're smart. You, I have fun around you. I trust you. And you have to be devil's advocate. You, you have to play devil's advocate, and you can't help them, and you can't let anybody else help them. And you'll say, great. That's the definition of a friend. What is it about me? specifically that i know that you'll be there for me no matter what and they'll continue to describe you and sometimes it'll take a long time and sometimes it goes a little quicker but it's always a little bit torturous for them but eventually they'll give up eventually they'll give up trying to describe you and answer your question and they'll start talking about themselves and my friend said to me of me i don't know simon all i know is i don't even have to talk to you i can just be in the same room as you and i feel inspired and i got goosebumps in other words they'll get to the point where they give up trying to understand you and they all articulate some value you have in their lives and you get the emotional response, whether you get goosebumps or whether you well up. And your friends will probably say exactly the same thing, but they'll—or if they'll say different things, it'll, it'll all mean the same thing. And it's the point where they start describing themselves and you have the emotional response that you've tapped into the why. Because this is the thing that you present and give to the world This is the reason why you do what you do. It's your purpose, cause or your, your belief. It's, it's, it's the purpose you have on this planet and it's the value you fulfill in people's lives. So when you are true to that purpose, when you're true to yourself, you have great value in people's lives. And when you're not, they quote unquote, don't know who you are, you know, and the same goes for organizations because that's all an organization is. It's a, it's a scaled up version of an individual. So all the same rules apply.
2: That was fantastic. I could see John and I just drifting off into thought. Like we've been friends for a long time, so I'm like, I don't know what I would tell you. I don't, I don't even like you that much now. Yeah.
1: Well, that happens too.
2: <laughs> so, and the other thing is, you mentioned there at the end organizations. I love how you turn a lot of your messaging into how it works in an organization. Yeah. Is it to pitch them, or is it because you believe they make the most change? Or I, I'm just interested.
1: Well, as I said before, you know, one of the paradoxes of being human is we are at all times individuals and members of groups, always, whether it's a family or a church or a company or a baseball team or whatever it is. And the problem is, is, you know, we have these discussions, you know, what should you do? Should you serve the group or should you serve yourself? Well, the answer is yes. It's a, it's, it's a paradox. It's a conflict sometimes. And sometimes it causes a stress. Do I sacrifice or do I, do I act selfishly? And the answer is yes. You know, these are hard decisions. This is why it's hard to be human. And so necessarily to discuss what it means to be an individual requires that we talk about what it means when when we live in groups as well. Um, And so um, just as the law uh, understands a corporation as an individual, in some way, shapes, or form, it it acts like one as well. You know, the IBM today announced. IBM didn't announce anything. You know, it was somebody who said, hey, we need to get this word out. Somebody wrote a press release. Somebody approved it. And ta-da, IBM announced. There's usually a single person um, or at least a group of people who, who agreed to something, uh, and it becomes the word or the action of the company. Uh, what is the, the the device metonymy? Is that the, the literary device where the part rep- represents the whole? I can't remember. Sounds good to
2: me. Anyway, too, too many the, syllables in that word.
1: <laughs> right. So, for example, we discuss the character of a human being. Somebody's of good character. Well, the character of an individual scaled up is the culture of a company. So, a somebody of strong character. Well, they're going to be honest, right? and they're going, to be, they're going to act with integrity. This is somebody we would say has strong character, right? We, we'd rather work or, or marry or be friends with people of strong character. Well, guess what? A strong culture is one of honesty and integrity, and people act for the good of each other and not necessarily for the good of themselves. You know, a, Somebody of strong character would sacrifice sometimes their interests for the good of their friends or their family. We say that person has strong character. Well, it's exactly the same thing. All the same descriptions apply, except we apply them to the group instead of the individual.
2: Wow, that was a great description and one that, that I have not heard thus far. So I know we're uh, well, a lot of
1: people talk about the importance of a culture in a company, but nobody seems to want to define it.
2: And that's because it's been, I think, so difficult to define. It's easy to just say we should have a good culture,
1: right? And so you know, like, what, what, and, and culture is not the color you paint the walls or whether you give everybody free lunch. <laughs> right. We've got a great culture, you know. That that has nothing to do with it. You know, those are ancillary. Those are components, maybe. You know, a strong culture is the quality of the people and the manner in which they work together, just like the character of a human being. The culture is is something that we can either trust or buy into or not.
2: Well, you know what just gave me goosebumps was what you just said, because I worked for a small kind of tech startup and all the gadgets and video games and all this stuff. But and it, it taps into Leaders Eat Last When you talk about having trust and not being fearful within an organization and being able to bring yourself, your ideas, and your benefit to an organization, and that is the culture, man, that talk, that message not only resonated with me, but I'm like, how have I been in the workforce for a decade and never thought of this?
1: Well, and the reason is um, because these things are hard to measure. They're hard to see and they're hard to touch. And things like culture are very often dismissed as fluffy and nice if you can afford it, or a good idea if you have the time and money. That's like saying I should only work on my character as a human being if I'm rich. Character is only something to worry about when in good times. Well, the bad news is character is really, really important in bad times. Um, And culture is most important during the struggle because this is when the people come together or not. You know, we can't judge the quality of a crew in calm waters. We have to judge the quality of a crew in rough waters. And one of the challenges we have in american business is we keep judging the quality of a company how they when they when they're high flying you know when the numbers are skyrocketing because i don't know it happens to be a good economy we say oh my god great leadership and a great company and a great culture but as soon as a as soon as recession or struggle or scandal hits and the whole thing shakes how come we're not judging the quality of the culture there you know we hailed ge as this amazing company during the good times ge needed a 300 billion dollar bailout after 2008 mm-hmm. so just begs the question, is it good? Was it you know, in rough waters that came apart? The ship came apart in rough waters. Was it a good ship in the first place?
0: Do you think that we're going to see a change in our society now moving more towards that message that you have in Leaders Eat Last, where the CEO does put their people first and make sacrifices first, as opposed to laying off and trimming the budget, that type of thing?
1: Well, I mean, I certainly hope so. I've devoted my life to that pursuit. So it would certainly be a it would certainly be, make me feel pretty bad if, that, if it didn't go in that direction, that I wasted my life. But yeah, I, there's, I, I hope so. I think, I think many there are some people who just understand the inherent benefit of, of the prioritization of people inside a human organization, which is all organizations. But there are some that, you know even from a business standpoint, understand that what used to work doesn't work anymore. So something has to change. And if something doesn't change prescriptively, it will break. And it's it's kind of like a stock market crash, right? We had the Great Depression because the stock market crashed because of all um, kinds of you know speculation and 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 the way that the banks were allowed to operate. And so we intervened and we passed something called the Glass-Steagall Act. And because of the Glass-Steagall Act, which disallowed investment banks and re- retail banks to be the same organization, amongst other changes, um, it actually helped prevent uh, any more stock market crashes. There were zero stock market crashes between the Great Depression. And the 1980s, zero. But in the 1980s, we started dismantling Glass Steagall because we wanted to make the banks, you know, we, we saw opportunity to make uh, more profit, quite frankly. And since the dismantling of Glass Steagall, we've seen a stock market crash in 1987. Uh, we saw the dot com bubble burst, and we had 2008. We've had three stock market crashes since the dismantling of Glass Steagall, where prior we had zero for 50 years. So, the, the reason for the analogy is if we do not intervene, it will break. And so, we have the opportunity to change the course ourselves or wait until the course is changed for us, which will always be more sudden and more violent.
2: That's fantastic. I love it. Well, Simon, I know uh, we went a few minutes over, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. I love what you're doing, I'm inspired by it. So, keep it going. Uh, I know we mentioned your books and your website is startwithy.com. Is there anywhere else that you would like our listeners to find you?
1: Yeah, all the you know usual spots. I'm on I'm on the Facebook, and I am a regular contributor to Twitter. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: I, I, I tweet quite differently to most people. I, I sort of um, I use it as a as a filing cabinet for my kooky ideas. And so all the tweets are mine. And whenever I have a kooky idea, I share them. And so that's that's where they go. They go into Twitter.
2: And you send out daily emails of inspiration, which is probably, uh, the, yes. it's probably the only newsletter I read because it's short and I'm like, ah, oh, that felt good. All right, uh, let's yes, move on. Yeah. You can go
1: to startwithwhy.com and sign up for something we call Notes to Inspire. I think the sign up is somewhere at the bottom. But yeah, if you sign up for Notes to Inspire five days a week on every weekday morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, We send out, it's not really a newsletter. It's uh, just a daily email with with a little bit of inspiration to get the day going.
2: It's great stuff. All right, Simon, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Keep on doing what you're doing.
1: Thanks for helping me spread the ideas, guys.
2: Absolutely. Have a good one.
1: You too.
0: Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Simon Sinek. As I mentioned before, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter over there stay in touch with us tweet us send us a message on facebook send us an email we love hearing from you we love getting guest suggestions from you guys we do try our best to reach out to 99.9 percent of the people not that...
2: a chance maybe like 80 percent.
0: it's pretty close how many people we actually reach out to but keep sending
2: those over we truly do appreciate it hey john you uh you didn't have too much to say this episode i'm sure people are wondering why why like a five-year-old, <laughs> keep asking why. No, Nice, well play.
0: I really wanted to talk about the newest book, Leaders Eat Last. And when we started diving into the stuff prior to Leaders Eat Last, I knew how much you look up to and just love Simon. So I figured, hey, this is your unicorn.
2: Take take it, man. <laughs> yeah, Go for it. Unicorns don't exist. He exists, clearly. Wait, unicorns don't exist? <laughs> Hold <laughs> no, on. No, I mean, but think about it, right? The reason I love him so much and the reason I love his message, okay, I won't say him. I never met the guy before, but he's great to talk to. But is because why, man? That's why. That's where this podcast came from. Like my own confusion, your confusion, trying to learn things, asking questions, and then he can say it so well. It was actually tough to interview because he he was turning the questions back on me.
0: Oh, I know. I, I was scared. St- I was sitting back laughing. And I was like, oh man, this is really good advice for us in our interview process too. <laughs> where he said, don't
2: ask certain types of questions yeah but then i couldn't respond to it because i I wanted to start with the word why exactly yeah I, i could see that let us know what you thought guys reach out to us tell us tweet us and include simon on the twitter thing he might get back to you as he mentioned and we'll talk to you next week thanks for listening